0: Well, the U.S. Treasury is engaged in a never-ending cat-and-mouse game of trying to foil counterfeiters. You know, a nation starts to rely on printed money instead of hard currency. It technically opens the door to anyone with a sophisticated printer to literally make their own money. But, of course, the government's not going to make it that easy. And it may not be possible to stop all counterfeiters. But the government aims to make it as hard as possible by designing security countermeasures right into our currency. So about every decade, the $100 bill is redesigned. It's given features that the average counterfeiter cannot reproduce. And this may not stop all counterfeit bills from entering circulation, but it, it makes the counterfeits easy to spot. Because they do not have these distinguishing marks of the real bill. And so conversely, you can tell the real thing by its key defining features. And I wonder if you ever had a counterfeit bill, you got it on accident somehow, you try to use it, it got rejected. It'd be like you bought something online, some person, or you sold something, someone paid you in cash. Later you took that maybe 100 to buy something else and it got detected and rejected and confiscated. You just lost $100 technically. No one wants that to happen. So the next time you receive payment in cash, You might want to employ a series of checks or tests. You look at that $100 bill and wondering, like, is this the real thing? And these tests or features are public knowledge. The government wants you to know what distinguishes a real $100 bill. And they're confident no one's going to be able to actually reproduce a bill that has all of their security measures in place. And so you have a way to tell the real from the fake. So what are the tests or distinguishing marks of a $100 bill, just for the sake of illustration? There are seven of them. This is for $100 dollars after 2009. So if any of you are you know, wealthy in here, you can secretly pull out your hundred right now and you can check. We won't, we won't judge. We might ask you to go to dinner later, though, but Number one, look at the serial numbers. The serial numbers should correspond to the series. If the bill is series 2009, it should begin with the letter J. If the series is 2009A. The uh, serial number should begin with the letter L. Number two, feel Franklin's shoulder. The 100 is printed with a slight texture on Franklin's shoulder, and you can feel it if you rub your fingers across it. I didn't know that one's was kind of cool. Number three, check for color-changing ink. There's a large copper inkwell to the left of the serial number. If you look at it from different angles, it'll change from copper to green. Hold up, number four, hold up the bill to light, and you'll see an embedded thread to the left of Franklin's portrait. I think everyone knows that one, right? And number five, hold the bill up to light. You'll also see a watermark portrait of Franklin in the white oval on the right hand side. Number six, there's a blue security ribbon to the right of Franklin's portrait, and it's also printed in 3D. So if you move it back and forth, the, the tiny bells inside look like they're moving. And then number seven, use a magnifying glass to read the microprint on Franklin's collar. Really, really tiny, it printed on its collar, it says, United States of America. It's pretty ingenious security features were designed into our currency. And together, those these marks assure you that you're not holding a counterfeit, but the real thing. Now, I bring up this illustration, hopefully, for obvious reasons, as we're studying the assurance of salvation. How do you tell real faith from false faith? We'll be looking at today. And with assurance, we're asking the question, Not how do I know or how to get saved, but how do I know that I am saved? A very quick version of what we've established so far. Now, how is a person saved? A person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Salvation is a gift of God. And we receive that gift one way and one way only by faith in Christ. And God consequently promises in which it's impossible for God to lie that whoever believes has eternal life. whoever has received the the son in true faith is born again, is justified, and has presently received life eternal. And so how do you know that you are saved? Well, in the most fundamental sense, it comes down to your faith. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you received the son? Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And if so, then based on God's own promises and his word, You are saved. You can be assured. You just need to trust God when he promises to save forever those who believe in Jesus. In one sense, assurance is that simple. Salvation is based on faith. And the assurance of that salvation is going to be tied to that same faith. But in another sense, it is not that simple. It just leads us to another question. Namely, well, how do I know I have true faith? You're saved by true faith. You can be assured by that true faith ultimately, but then we're really just kicking the can down the road like how do I know I have that true faith? Now, I hope you've affirmed so far. If you believe in Jesus, you should be able to take God at his word and trust his power to save you forever, cuz ultimately his assurance comes from God's power, God's promises, not our works, our effort. But the linchpin to having assurance in God's promises is true faith. But like I said, that just presents another problem because the Bible says there's such a thing as false faith. Faith can be faked. Faith can be counterfeited. And last week we established this fact very clearly from scripture. We saw numerous examples of people in scripture with false faith. And we're even talking about people who claim to believe in Jesus They said they accepted him as Lord and Savior. Many would check off on a sound doctrinal statement. They would be good church attendees. Some even had full assurance. They were convinced that when they died, for sure, they would go to heaven and be accepted. But they were wrong. They were misled. Their assurance was false as their faith was false. And they were rejected by the Lord himself. We saw examples of that in scripture last time. And the very existence of such a false faith leads us to question ourselves and our faith. You know, is there any way for us to know that we are not deceived? How do we know that what we think is saving faith is not like counterfeit? And then when we get to heaven, it's going to be rejected. It doesn't measure up. It's not the real thing. Well, the good news is you can know. We're not just left to a guessing game. And it's not just based on feelings, but God in His Word has described for us the marks of true faith and the marks of false faith. And we are given objective ways to examine our faith and see if it lines up, if it's genuine or not, if it looks like the real thing or the, the false thing. And by evaluating your faith in light of these marks, you can gain assurance that you are born again, that your faith passes the test. And you really are saved. Now, last time we actually focused on the negative side of things. We studied false faith. And we also explored the marks, the identifying marks of a false faith. The faith in Jesus Christ is a total commitment of the heart and to trust and follow Jesus personally for salvation. False believers fall short of that definition. Oftentimes to them, faith is merely intellectual assent it's believing in Jesus as a historical figure. Others confuse faith with a Christian culture. I mean, they're, they're of a culture. They, they go to church. They were raised in the faith. They, they still are around the things of the Lord. But they've not personally placed their full trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Either way, though, such false, misguided faith always reveals, reveals itself. And how does it reveal itself? We found that the number one mark of false faith is a lack of fruit. Living things grow and bear fruit. Dead things do not. Likewise, if someone is born again, if they're made alive in Christ, he or she is going to grow. They're going to bear fruit. But one who is still dead in his trespasses and sins will not. The absence of spiritual fruit paired with the presence of, of ongoing disobedience and rebellion and wickedness are frequently given as the signs of false believers with false faith. In addition, we also found, although obvious, you know, lack of perseverance in the faith is another sure sign of false, false faith because it's in the nature of true faith to endure to the end. Now, a lot more could be said about the nature and reality of false faith But our aim today is to move on, and we want to start talking about the distinguishing marks of true faith. Focus on the positive side. What shows us true faith? Kind of like the $100 bill, God has designed and defined true faith to come with certain features, certain distinguishing marks. And the presence of these marks together indicates that you have the real thing and not a counterfeit. So, in other words, when you look at the definition and the depiction of true saving faith in Scripture, and then you line that up with your own faith, well, if the two match, if they line up, you can be assured, according to Scripture, you have real saving faith. And then by that faith, you can be assured that your salvation is real, as God promises to save those who believe. So, we're going to get started. I have planned in advance 12 distinguishing marks of true faith, 12 distinguishing marks of true faith. And together, these help form that the practical basis of assurance. These form the practical basis of our assurance. Studying these is like studying the defining features of a true $100 bill. And this is then going to equip us to examine and evaluate our own faith so we can see, is it the real thing or not? And that's what we're after. We just want to know it's going to take us a couple weeks to go through these 12 distinguishing marks. Some are weightier than others. Some are worth a little bit more of our time to understand and explore. And that's the case this, this evening. We're going to just cover two big ones, two very important distinguishing marks of true faith tonight. So we're just going to get into the first two. The first of those is obedience. First mark of true faith is obedience. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not the only mark of true faith. You cannot take any of these in isolation. But that being said, Scripture just paints this very consistent picture of false faith being indicated by a lack of obedience to God's will and true faith being indicated by obedience to God's will. False faith does not produce good works or fruit. True faith does. And to be clear, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says we are saved by grace, through faith, apart from works. We're not saved by works. But we are saved, Ephesians 2, 10 says, for works. We are saved then to get to work, to the glory of God. This is why Jesus told us, he said, you will know them by their fruits. A true believer versus false believer is largely identified by the presence or absence of these accompanying works. And this is why we learned last time James says, faith without works is dead. You know, that type of faith, the type of faith that does not produce works or bear fruit, call it what you will, that's not a saving faith. That faith can't save you. That kind of faith, he says, is worthless. But a true saving faith will be known by, well, bearing fruit producing works. Now though, we really want to focus on the verses that teach us, I think, more from the positive side. Because conversely, we see an emphasis on fruit or good works or obedience as being the clear result of true faith. Works don't make faith. Works of obedience don't save. But they are the necessary consequence of the type of faith that saves. And so that's why works can become a partial proof of that one's faith is real. And so let's begin. John 15, we'll start. We're going to look at many verses as we typically do in kind of survey fashion. We'll start in John chapter 15. So you can turn there now. John 15, we'll get one through eight. Is Jesus teaching on the vine and the branches. Analogy. John 15, I'll start reading, but you can still turn there. John 15, one through eight. He says in verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And true branches are those that bear fruit. False branches don't bear fruit. God's desire is that true branches bear fruit and then bear even more fruit. You know, as with the parable of the soils, the true believer is the one who bears fruit. But look, not all believers are of the same maturity or bear the same amount. Some produce 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold. The point is, Jesus agrees here that the true believer, the true branch, is going to bear some fruit, and they should increase over time. This is in verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. And so neither can you unless you abide in in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here we see why fruit is an indication of your status. It says the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine. The only way a branch is going to bear this real fruit is by abiding in the vine. This is why the presence of fruit is a real demonstration that someone is abiding in the vine. And likewise, the presence of fruit in a believer, it's, it's a demonstration that the person is abiding in Jesus. That's akin to salvation. This is why fruit can be a real indicator. You're in Christ. You're abiding in Christ. He says, verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. It's not talking about the loss of salvation here, but the demonstration that a branch was never a true branch. And then seven and eight he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. Then verse eight, my father will be, is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The the proof of discipleship comes in, in the bearing of fruit. And that's what we're after with assurance, right? It's the proof of our discipleship, the proof of our salvation. You're not made a Christian by works, but your obedience is fruit bearing, which comes only by abiding in Christ, but it will come if you abide in Christ, is a big factor of that proof. Obedience demonstrates true faith. And by that faith in God, we can be assured. Now, let's go to Galatians 5. Got some ground to cover. Galatians chapter 5, just so we can get a little depiction. Like, what are we even talking about when we say good fruit, bad fruit? What does that actually mean? And Galatians 5 gives us a little understanding. A little concrete picture and some examples of what we're talking about here. He's using the analogy of of fruit, or he will, with the spirit, the deeds of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. And so look at verse 19. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is bad fruit. We're just talking about unrighteousness. Now you notice he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a carefully chosen phrase, as we'll confirm later. He does not say anyone who has ever done any of these things will not inherit the kingdom, because then the kingdom would be empty. I mean, who has never had an outburst of anger? Even true believers may fall in some of these areas, but the true believer will no longer make these the practice of his life. And the word for practice here speaks of a repeated, continual, habitual action. It also comes as a present active participle, just further showing he's talking of a repeated, ongoing activity. The one living in disobedience is denying his confession that Jesus is Lord. And that person should not have assurance. He or she may not be saved. Now, again, we can't see the heart. It's very hard to say for sure sometimes. But we can see fruit. And if all you get continually out of a person's life are are these deeds of the flesh, well, it's, it's not looking good. Now, conversely, verse 22. He says after, but. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here we see what good fruit looks like. And true believers should look like this. Now, understand, true believers are not these things only and always. I mean, who is patient? 24-7. 24-7. But are these fruits present in your life? And as you examine yourself, do you see some of these virtues in your life and growing? Is your heart set against the flesh with its sinful passions and desires? Look, we do have to be careful when we're using works to or, or obedience uh, to evaluate ourselves as a measure of assurance. It can get tricky. It requires discernment. For example, where's... The, the cutoff line. Well, what's the threshold? How many deeds of the flesh can be in your life before your faith is proven false? Like how bad do you have to be where you cross that line and now you're, you're not really saved? Is there some threshold of disobedience that now proves all of a sudden your faith is false? No, it doesn't work like that. Ultimately, we're trying to evaluate faith, which is a heart issue, something we cannot see. We're simply using these, these works as a window into a person's heart. And so look, you look at verse 24, you know, has a person done that? Have they crucified in their heart, the flesh with its passions and desires, meaning they've turned against it. You know, is there part of them in their new nature that hates sin, hates the flesh, hates their old ways. I mean, you might have a true believer who's still caught up in a great sin, And in a sense, that sin may be ongoing. They're battling it for months. But, you know, are they living in that sin joyfully, rebelliously, carelessly, openly, without repentance? Or do they hate it? Even though they fall prey to it, do they hate it? And conversely, are they striving by the Spirit's power to grow in the fruit of the Spirit? That they may be weak and they're only bearing fruit tenfold. But are there signs of life and obedience? Just be careful. This this evaluation of works is a real thing, but it's not always black and white. We're dealing with the spectrum and discernment is needed. But so far you can see how the presence or absence or absence of fruit is part of that spectrum. Now let's carry on though. We're gonna see a string of verses in First John that like it makes it really, really clear. And so let's turn to first John chapter two. Carrying on with this first kind of mark of true faith, which is obedience. First John chapter 2. In my opinion, this verse is the clearest of them all. And, and John in his writing, that's just very simple, very clear. That's just what he does. First John 2, 3 through 6. He says in verse 3, By this we know, That we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments. Now how clear is that? He doesn't say this is how we know him. This is how we come to know Jesus. This is how we're saved. He says this is how we know. That we have come to know him. He's talking assurance. You guys all get that? And so what's his test here? Well if we keep his commandments. Makes it a deal out of obedience. Verse 4. The one who says. I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This person is a liar in his claim to know God. He doesn't know God proven by his lack of obedience to his commands. Verse five, but whoever keeps same word, keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And the one who obeys is showing and displaying. He has truly received the saving and transforming love of God. And that's because the saving love of God transforms and has as its goal uh, obedience, producing obedience. He says, verse five, by this, we know that we are in him. Same thing. This is how we know that we're in Christ. This is assurance. This is how you know you're saved. Verse six, the one who says he abides in him, himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. What's one big way to know that you're really in Christ, a.k.a. saved? Well, walk the walk. You know, walk as Jesus walked. Bear fruit. You know, it's all kind of the same thing. That's about as clear as can be, but let's add a few verses in John to, to round this out before we add some notes and make some qualifications. There are qualifications, but let's, let's keep going a little bit. For the sake of time, go down to verse 28. Same chapter. He says, Now little children... Abide in him, Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. So it's kind of like, first, or kind of like John 15. We're called to abide in Jesus. And abiding in Jesus gives us confidence or assurance before Christ, which is the knowledge that we've been accepted by him. And the one without this assurance is one who fears Christ's return for the fear that he might not be saved or he might be rejected. But The Lord does not want us to live in fear of him or his return. We're meant to have confidence and live in anticipation of his return. Where does that confidence come from? It comes from abiding in Jesus, which in turn leads to practicing righteousness, he says. So look, if you're living as a hypocrite, there's going to be a natural fear inside of you. Because sin and hypocrisy brings shame. And shame leads us to hide from God, like Adam and Eve. We fear rejection. But you cast out that fear of standing in God's presence by practicing righteousness by faith. And repenting when you fall short. That, that gives us the knowledge that we really are born in him. Born again. And are accepted by him. Now he carries on with this thought in chapter 3. He's talking about the return of Christ. Longing for the return of Christ. And look at chapter 3 verse 3. It's the hope of Christ and his return. He says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. And then verse 4 everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Now, in first John, you gotta pay attention to the, the key terms and, and uh, the Greek tenses behind them and whatnot. Practices sin. For John, he's talking about continual habitual sin, an ongoing life and lifestyle of sin without repentance. This is the same guys in Matthew 7, where Jesus said, you know, they're kept out of the kingdom. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That Jesus came that we would be free from sin. He's sinless. We are to be sinless like him. And the one who's living in ongoing sin reveals that he does not abide in Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus. Now, verse 6 might confuse you, but you got to know. John is using present active parsicles, present active indicatives. What that means is he's not talking about sinning once in the past or sinning even in the present. He's talking about living in ongoing habitual sin. When he says, no one who abides in him sins, he's not saying that, you know, if you're a Christian, you're done sinning. He, he says that in chapter one, which we will see shortly, that it, we as Christians, we're still sinners. I mean, we still sin. But the point he's making is that the one who lives in ongoing, unrepentant sin displays, he doesn't know Jesus. That, that's contrary to the confession of Christ because... We live now in a broken pattern of sin versus an unbroken pattern of sin. Verse 7, he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. The devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. You know, the, again, the practice of righteousness—that doesn't make you righteous. You're made righteous by faith in Christ, but you are displayed righteous by these these works of righteousness by practicing righteousness. That displays you have been made righteous by faith alone. And likewise, the practice of sin displays that we're still sons of the devil. Again, continued use of careful terminology. It's not just sinning. It's the practice of sin versus the practice of righteousness. You're looking at the lifestyle of someone, their their habitual character. And to finish off verse 9 and 10, he says, No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Isn't that what we're after? Just tell us, how do I know? Am I a child of God or am I still a child of the devil? John says, it's obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. We'll talk about that later, loving your brother. But here, what makes it obvious? It's the pattern of a person's life. The term born of God speaks of new birth, salvation, and no one who is saved practices sin. Why not? Because he says his seed abides in him. You're born again. You've got a new nature. The seed of God abides in you. That means you will break the pattern of sin in your life with obedience. And when you fall short, repentance, that's what breaks the pattern that makes you different. It's not saying you will be sinless. We know you are not going to be sinless, but you should be distinctly different. Now you're obeying, you are bearing fruit, and you're breaking the pattern of sin with repentance, a continual life of repentance. This is what distinguishes the true from the false, the son of God versus the son of the devil. You know, with these very clear verses from John and 1 John, you can't deny that the pattern of a believer's life is paramount to evaluating the reality of their faith. The new birth, by definition, puts us on a trajectory of spiritual growth and obedience and righteousness. We don't all grow at the same rate, but some pattern of putting off sin and putting on righteousness should be present if someone is alive. Now, make a quick qualifier here when it comes to these works of obedience. God wants you to do the right thing, but also from the right heart, right? With the right motives. The heart motives behind obedience matter to God. And they're part of the definition of good fruit. That Keepers like 4.12 says, God's word and his judgments judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is looking at our hearts. Matthew 6.1, Jesus warned, you know, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. Someone can be doing the right things. They look like they're obeying God. They're giving to the poor, like Jesus says. They're praying. But if you're doing it with impure motives, whatever they might be, some impure motive, that's not good fruit. That's still bad fruit. And so we do have to be careful when we're looking at this evaluation of works that God cares about what we do and also why we do it. It should come because his seed abides in us. We love Christ. We are serving him to his glory. We're not just part of some religion. So even this needs qualification. Nonetheless, though, the first distinguishing mark of genuine faith, it's a prominent one. It's obedience. The practice of righteousness, obeying God's will, bearing good fruit. These are all necessary outcomes of saving faith. It's qualified. We're not talking perfect obedience because we still sin. We stumble. We can even fall into some prolonged battles with sin. But the true believer is not going to live in that sin habitually without repentance. There's no threshold here that scripture gives. There's no line in the sand. But just assurance will rise and fall with the level of hypocrisy in a person's life. Discernment is needed. We're just using the the deeds of obedience as a window into someone's heart. Really our own heart. But the bottom line is, if their faith is real, they should be striving against that sin. And they should be seeking righteousness from a heart that loves God. Is that present or not? And we talked last time about the, uh, the, the example of false faith from Judas. But at the same time, we are encouraged by the example of true faith. From David and Peter. Now these were two men, genuine believers. They had real faith. They had a life of righteousness overall. They had hearts for God. they were obeying. They both stumbled into serious sin. They did not lose their salvation, but in this case, the magnitude of their sin surely hurt the assurance of their salvation. And David himself prayed in Psalm 51:12, "You know, "Restore to me the joy of." of your salvation after his great sin. He lost the experience of the joy of salvation, AKA a measure of assurance. Now look, the pattern of his life was one of obedience and a heart for God. Same goes for Peter. And though they stumbled, David and Peter both went on to display the reality of their faith because they just could not live for too long in an unbroken pattern of sin. They both, by God's grace, broke the pattern of their sin by repenting. And that's going to lead us to the second big distinguishing mark of true faith. Repentance. These go hand in hand, right? Distinguishing marks of true faith. Obedience. But look, we're not talking perfect obedience. What about when we fall short? Well, repentance. That's another way you, you can see true faith. And it's not true of the unbeliever. It's repentance. So we're just going to finish up with this repentance. And true faith in Christ comes with an awareness of God, His character, His holiness, His perfections, His righteousness. It also comes with an awareness of self, our fallenness, our sin nature, our guilt, our shame. And thankfully, we learn we're justified in Christ by faith, not works. And Jesus pays for all of our sins. We don't have to make payments, penance is not the answer. But I trust you know, repentance is biblical. It is an answer for us. Repentance is really the other side of the coin of faith. Faith and repentance always go together. In faith, we are turning toward Christ. We are placing our trust in him. But to turn toward something, we're turning away from something else. And that's merely repentance. We are turning away from our sin, which we once loved. Forsaking sin, that's what repentance is, and turning to Christ They go together, turning away from one thing, turning toward another. That's just repentance and faith. And such faith and repentance are the means of salvation. But even after salvation, though we are not unsaved by our sins, scripture teaches that ongoing repentance is going to be the response of a new heart. And precisely because now we love God and we hate our sin. Anytime we stumble back into sin, it grieves us and we are going to all over again forsake it and go back to Christ. As we come to an awareness and brokenness over our failing, the true believer will naturally turn from that sin and just seek the Lord's forgiveness and restoration in Christ. And so we're going to find that this repentance is another important mark of true faith. You're still in 1 John, so go back to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Here's another very clear passage. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. He's speaking morally here. God is morally perfect, free from sin and anything evil. Verse 6 If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What's this person claiming? They're claiming to have fellowship with the God who is light. I know that God. I walk with that God. But in reality, they walk in the darkness. They they, they don't just stumble in the darkness. They're living in the darkness. Well, that person lies. They don't practice the truth. How are they lying? They're lying in their claim to have fellowship with the God who's light. If you have fellowship with the God who is light, you're not going to walk in the darkness. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. On the flip side, it's the practice of righteousness, or the walking in the light. That's the, the proof of our fellowship, the proof of our cleansing. Even more, assurance, it gives us assurance that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us From all sin, even ongoing sin. In fact, after this, John is going to talk about how we deal with the ongoing sin in our lives as Christians. So he makes clear I mean, if you're living in the darkness, you're unsaved, right? That's what's obvious. A child of the devil, he said, right? But we're Christians. We live in the light, but man, we sure stumble in the darkness. So what do we do about that? Well, verse 8 he says, If we say, that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Also verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This, these two verses, sandwiching verse 9, they, he's showing like, look, the answer here is not to pretend that you don't sin. The answer is not to deny that you, you're still a sinner. You're Christians. You're in the light. We still sin. And to deny it, well, you're making God a liar now because he makes clear you're still a sinner. But what's the right response? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right response is to confess and God will continually forgive and restore. And that's part of repentance where we are turning from our sin. We're saying the same thing about our sin that God does. We are forsaking it all over at the feet of Christ. And he promises to cleanse and restore. Look at chapter two, verse one. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you. So that you may not sin. Like we're, we're trying not to sin. We are now in the light. We want to walk in the light, but look, he says, and if anyone sins, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also those for the whole world. John knows, look, we we are in the light. We are not, we're certainly trying not to sin anymore, but he understands the reality. We will stumble in the darkness. We must not walk in the darkness, an unbroken pattern of unrighteous living. But as you stumble, repent. And good news, the true believer who stumbles, you're not unsaved. Remember, we still have an advocate with the Father, Christ. He's already paid for all of our sins. This is what gives us assurance, you know, what he did for us. And as we repent, as we do verse 9, not verse 8, not verse 10, you do verse 9, you are rightly responding, you're giving evidence of a true faith, the one who has been born again. The true believer will rightly respond to the disobedience in his life. He won't deny it, he won't hide it. And he won't live in it for long. He will forsake it, repent. God may discipline his children who tarry in repentance, but he will always forgive and restore. You know, as with obedience, repentance must be qualified. We're talking about with repentance, a true godly sorrow over sin. This is a recognition you've done wrong, violating God's will and character. There's a real brokenness and sorrow over what you've done. Not just because you're sad you got caught, or you're sad because of the consequences, but you recognize you've, you've grieved the God who's righteous. That there's a humility here, and paired with just casting yourself on God's mercy in Christ for reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10 gives a quick little distinction between true and false repentance. Paul says, I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. He says, verse 10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The true believer, when they sin, there's eventually a brokenness. Not because they're sad they got caught, but they they are grieved. They have a heart for God now. They love what God loves, they hate what God hates, they hate sin. And the fact that they stumble again into the darkness grieves them and produces a godly sorrow that leads to repentance without regret. They're not sorry for turning away from their sin. They're happy to turn away from their sin. That's a true repentance. Romans 6 teaches believers have a new relationship to sin. We may still sin, but we're not enslaved to its power. We're slaves to righteousness, which means a true believer is not going to tolerate ongoing sin in his life he will sense the inconsistency over time and and repent. Or, you know, if a person is deceived and you have a true believer who might be tolerating sin in his life, one, God might discipline him to break him out of it, or two, uh, another brother in the church might confront him and rebuke him, showing him his sin. And if that person is a true believer, like David, he will repent. At the same time, the false believer will not repent. And isn't that the whole point of the church discipline process in Matthew 18? What's the telltale sign that this person who claims to be a Christian is not truly saved? Christ says they refuse to repent over and over again. People approach them lovingly over their sin, calling them back. They just keep refusing to repent. And Christ says, well, there you go. There's a false believer. That person, at the very least, should not have assurance. For the true believer, though, at some point, repentance is going to enter the equation of their true faith. So these are the first two marks of true faith, obedience, and repentance. You can't get around them. They are seen accompanying true faith all the time. We're not talking perfect faith, or rather, uh, perfect obedience. We're not talking perfect repentance. Look, who obeys all the time? Who even fully repents of every sin? And so you might ask, like, is perfect assurance even possible? like I said, answering these questions can be tricky because with assurance, we're, we're peering into someone's heart. These are, we're looking at the faith in their heart. And we'll say this. There are some people who call themselves Christians. They are outright living in open sin against God. There's no godly sorrow. They don't repent. They're not broken. The pattern of their lives is unrighteousness. They might attend church and partake in some Christian culture, But if you follow their lives around for a week, their private lives, you see the life of an unbeliever. That person should not have the assurance of salvation because that person's faith is missing drastically the defining marks, the distinguishing marks of true faith. That's not what true faith produces. Could that person be truly saved? Perhaps. Well, maybe God will discipline them and knock them out of it. Otherwise, maybe a loving believer will confront them and and they'll repent. If they're truly saved, they'll repent. If they're not, they won't. The scripture at the very least says that person should not enjoy assurance because they're not bearing the marks of true faith or salvation. That said, on the other side, you have many genuine believers. They're greatly wrestling with sin. They're far from perfect. They sin a lot, but they're wrestling. They don't love their sin. Their flesh loves their sin. But like Paul in Romans 7, there's a new part of them which hates their sin. They wish they could be free from these sinful urges and desires. It often gets the best of them. It discourages them. But they do repent and they want to change. Such a person, they're not displaying perfect obedience to God, but they are revealing a new heart. Because remember, perfect obedience is not the measure here. We're looking for signs of life. And an emergence of, of a new heart, growing, bearing fruit, seeking righteousness. Those are signs of life. And also the mere fact that a person is wrestling. Now there's a wrestling match against their own sin and flesh that wasn't there before. That's a sign of life as well, because dead people don't wrestle against their sin like that, at least not, the, not from the perspective of, of glorifying God. Making these evaluations, looking at your obedience and repentance can be hard. Discernment is required. But for now, know that a pattern of obedience and repentance is part of what distinguishes true faith from false faith. Are these part of your life? Obedience, repentance, springing from a heart that loves God. If so, you can gain assurance that your faith is real and therefore your salvation is real. It's not the whole story, though. There's more marks of genuine faith to add that will round out the picture. And we will carry on with those next time and uh, see even more. For now, I hope this helps as you start thinking through and even evaluating yourself. And do I have a faith that's real? And you can start by asking, do I show a pattern of obedience to God's will? And all those times I fall short, do I repent? And I pray you do. Let's finish in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word, which, which instructs and convicts us, Lord. We see what, what should come out of true faith. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That faith that saves us, though, should change us as you change us in the new birth. And it, it should result in fruit and living new lives and uh, producing works of obedience out of a heart that loves you. We see that's what should take place. We look at our lives, though, Lord, and all of us know that that doesn't always take place. None of us here always lives out your will. We don't live in perfect obedience. We fall short. Sometimes we stumble in the darkness. We can still be assured, though, Lord, knowing that if faith is real, that there will be some fruit. We will see growth. We also see conviction and repentance that's what marks a consistent believer and that still gives us hope because it's not up to us to save us or even sanctify ourselves we are relying on christ his work his grace and i just pray that we find here in ourselves a heart of brokenness a heart for god that's a heart of true faith that loves you that loves your will that desires obedience and runs after you and all those times we do stumble and fall short we repent and we grow For any here who don't find that, I pray you do convict them and and uh, open their eyes to a true faith as one that will seek the Lord, that's that's transformed to love his ways and and hate the sin that's in them. That's us for now, Lord. And we just pray you you grow us in this new heart that loves what you love and hates what you hate and will live accordingly. Until next time, as we learn more, just keep us in the faith and build our assurance uh, based on Christ's finished work and our faith in him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.